0: There's a little village in Argentina, and the ad agency for Guinness Beer went there and spent more than $15 million to make a not-very-good commercial for beer. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about why podcast advertising is so bad, but first... Here's a message from our sponsor.
1: The African-American Marketing Association is a nonprofit created to galvanize Black marketers across the world. We pride ourselves in providing resources and opportunities in order for our members to grow their career or their business. We've been established since 2019. We have over 400 members, a mix of professionals, freelancers, entrepreneurs, agency owners. Look, please support us by following our journey. Go to our website, aa-ma.org. That's aa-ma.org. Thank you.
0: Yes, ironically enough, we're here to talk about podcast ads, something I've been thinking about since before I had a podcast. At the beginning of podcasting, and in fact, on many podcasts to this day, the ads were read by the host.
2: Closing Day is proudly brought to you by our title sponsor, Insert Your Name Here.
1: This is a mid-roll ad. Listeners are captivated by the interview that Kyle is doing, and now the ad is seamlessly rolling into their experience as they listen to a trusted host.
0: This is pretty common for new forms of media. Back in the early days of television, people like Arthur Godfrey would read the ads that interspersed their show. On radio, the hosts of radio shows still read the ads. And in podcasting, that's where it began. I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to break the wall between me talking to you about something I made or something I'm thinking about and the voice of the advertiser. And I was thrilled at that choice when I heard a friend of mine reading an ad for hair dye, which I knew he didn't need and didn't use. Sooner or later, when the host reads the ads, trust is going to be eroded. And what we saw on television pretty quickly is that advertisers decided not to trust the hosts and hosts decided not to trust the advertisers. And so the ads are the ads and the host is the host. But back to that Guinness commercial. It turns out that big time advertisers appear to spend millions and millions of dollars on really well-produced TV ads It also turns out that it doesn't cost them much of anything. That's because more than 100 years ago, newspapers in Philadelphia and New York said to sales reps, if you bring us the finished ad, we will give you 15% of what the ad costs. And these sales reps evolved into ad agencies. At the beginning, it was just a classified ad with some words in it, but over time, people started adding pictures and more text. And then as we got into radio and television, the convention continued. And so when Procter & Gamble spends a billion or $2 billion a year on advertising, the tradition was the ad agency kept 15% and paid for all of the expenses. All of the art directors, all of the madmen, all of the people who were making the commercials came out of that 15%. Over time, This has evolved because big advertisers decided to split out the media buying where they got a kickback of 15% or a little bit less so the media buyer could keep a bit and then paid the advertising agencies to make their ads. But this 15% number established the standard. The standard for TV ads has been around for a really long time. You almost never see a network TV ad that looks like someone made it in their basement. And then we can fast forward just a little bit to ads in movie theaters. There weren't ads in movie theaters for 100 years, and then there were. And in fact, the last time I checked, which was about a year and a half ago, movie theater advertising was a bigger market than all of podcast advertising. Given the pandemic, my guess is those two have flipped, but for a decade or more, movie theater advertising was a big deal. One of the things that the folks who wanted to build a network of movie ads had to do was persuade the theater owners that the fans in the movie theater wouldn't revolt. And so if you remember the ads you've seen in movie theaters, the most expensive one being one for Chanel No. 5 that cost more than $30 million to produce.
1: I must have been the only person in the world
0: These ads, generally, were better, more professional, more cinematic than the ads on television. That's because if an advertiser really wanted to be in the theater, they had to do business with the network, and the network, the movie theater network, wasn't going to run an ad that wasn't very good. So now we've got this situation of podcasts, and at the beginning. Very few companies were advertising on podcasts. MailChimp just sold for 11 or $12 billion, generated a whole bunch of their brand value by basically sponsoring every decent podcast they could find. They understood that podcasts five years ago were reaching people who were interested, interesting, who were opinion leaders, who were leaders in general, who wanted to play with new ideas, and using host-read ads, MailChimp, built a reputation, a layer of trust with people who maybe wouldn't have heard from them otherwise. But then something shifted. And what shifted is more and more people started listening to podcasts. And instead of it being beautifully crafted podcasts like Mystery Show or first-person podcasts in which someone like me comes on and talks directly to you, that NPR voice kicked in. It became things like Serial or S-Town highly produced, true crime, things that appealed to millions and millions of people, not hundreds of thousands of people. And all of a sudden, advertisers took note. Advertisers took note that podcasts are a bargain, that they could buy the ads pretty cheap and reach lots of people who were more expensive to reach in other forms of media. But now, now they have a problem because a company like GEICO doesn't really want host-read ads, and a lot of hosts might have pushed back on reading ads for products that weren't right in their wheelhouse. Also, if a big advertiser is going to buy ads on a lot of podcasts, which they need to to make it worth their time, they need an ad that's more generic. So faced with all of that, what happened? Well, it's worth noting that the person bringing podcasting into most advertisers wasn't the most powerful or most senior person because the most powerful and most senior people came up on the TV side and they learned from their boss. Nobody ever got in trouble for running more TV ads. TV ads were where the glory was. TV ads were where big money was spent. And big companies, it's not their money. They're spending the boss's money, the boss's boss's money, the shareholders money. And it's fun. It's fun to work with the ad agency. It's fun to put on these little movies. It's fun to be in the ad game, as my friend Jay Levinson used to say. And so they were ignoring podcasts. Podcasts were a hard sell to them. And so a junior person comes along, and that person says, we're going to start running podcast ads, but they don't have a lot of money to spend. And they need to find somebody who knows how to make audio ads. Now here's the next part. The next part is radio is inherently a local medium. There are every once in a while, national radio ads. But most of the time, most radio ads are local. Not only are they local, but they are specific. And as a result, the money just isn't there to make fancy radio ads. Video
1: component system, get it all on sale now during Crazy Eddie's greatest TV and video sale ever.
0: And let's add to that one more thing, which is people are listening to the radio in their car and they're not really listening to radio. It's sort of on in the background. That means that radio advertising evolved really differently than TV advertising. It evolved to be highly compressed in time and in volume. Compressed in time because what you're trying to do is talk as fast as you possibly can to get as many words in in a minute as you could. And in terms of volume, because there's a button on the editing deck called compression. And what it does is it makes the soft sounds louder and the loud sounds softer so you can have it all fit in at the maximum volume. The end result of these fast-talking, compressed, locally made radio ads is there's a patina to them, and they sound terrible. Nobody puts together the best radio ad collection and has people buy it. There are still people who watch the Apple 1984 commercial, who watch the Mean Joe Green or I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing Coca-Cola commercials on television, but there's nobody who's digging deep to hear a commercial from a taco stand from seven or ten years ago. What happened then? What happened is the podcast advertisers were a little bit desperate because they don't have a corner on the market the way the movie theater network did because there are too many podcasts and not enough ads. And so when lousy ads show up, well, if the check clears, you can run them. And that brand manager, the junior one who's trying to get their brand onto podcasts, well, they don't have a budget to go make a $30 million Chanel Number no. 5 TV ad. And the people that they are hiring, they're the ones who are used to making radio ads. So when you listen to a podcast now going forward, one of the things you're going to be listening to is, does the host or does the person who owns that podcast have it in them to say no, to say, you know what, the ads are part of the show, and I don't want to run AM radio ads on my podcast. Or are they saying, this is a business, and business is business, and the ads aren't part of the podcast? Well, they certainly weren't saying that when the host was reading the ads, but it sounds like they're saying that now. And the purpose of this rant isn't to point out how annoyed I am at listening to podcast ads. They're not that hard to skip, Now, the point is to understand that media, all media, evolves. That YouTube ads look different than TV ads, even though they're both on video. Why? Because YouTube ads are way out on the long tail. You're never going to reach a lot of people with a typical YouTube ad, which means you don't have a lot of money to spend on it, which means you're not having an ad agency make it, which means it doesn't look like a TV ad. That doesn't mean it's a bad idea. It doesn't mean it doesn't work. It simply means it's different. And often we assume that a thing is a thing because it's always been that thing. But a TV ad is not a movie ad. And a movie ad is not a radio ad. And a radio ad is not a podcast ad. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to... To talk about what you're interested in. So, if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30 second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non commercial and nonprofit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Or a previous episode, or just about anything else, please visit akimbo.link, that's A K I M B O dot L I N K, and click the appropriate button. Three questions this week, some with a little bit of a warm up. Here we go.
2: Hi, Seth. This is Mili from Istanbul, Turkey. So I listened to your podcast with Tim Ferriss a year ago, and you asked him, Where's your bad riding? when he was seeking your advice on being stuck in writing. And that really resonated with me as an independent researcher, where I was waiting for the great paper. Instead, I decided to write a bad one first, and that's what I did. And now I shoot for a better one with having published a paper. So that really increased my productivity. Thank you for that. Then I, I came across Akimbo or five months ago, and I have listened to every episode since. And it has been a great journey. So my question is, how do you give so accurate advice to people who have not solved the problems that you have solved? Like take never missing a deadline or seeing the status roles as they are and choosing the path of generosity instead of complying with the industrial status setting. So, I feel that many people solve such problems and they progress in their life, but then they forget how life was before that.
0: Thank you for this. Thanks for the kind words. I included your preamble because I thought there was some really good advice in that. The idea of showing people your bad writing is, in fact, the first step to getting good at writing. But your question, I think, gets to something around empathy. And to answer it, I want to talk about Ricardo my favorite physical therapist. Here's the thing about physical therapy. Physical therapy works because human beings choose to put themselves through strenuous exercises to get better. Physical therapy is not done to you. I mean, at the end, when they put that warm, vibrating thing on, it's fantastic. But I think that's just a placebo. Most of physical therapy is you showing up and pushing yourself. And the thing about Ricardo is you can tell he does that to himself every day. He doesn't look like The Rock. He doesn't look like some sort of steroid-addicted weightlifter, but it's very clear that just an hour before I got there, he was pushing himself harder than he was asking me to push myself. And there are choices we make as we get more successful. You may be aware in your town of a cook or a chef who hit a level of success and then chose to coast, that the menu hasn't changed in decades, that the business model is still what it was. It's not easy work, but it's not new frontier work either. On the other hand, you might discover somebody like the great Kenji Lopez-Alt, whose new cookbook has absolutely nothing to do with the cookbook that came before. I happen to like the previous one a lot better. But I'm guessing that Kenji felt that same fear in the pit of his stomach just before the walk book came out that he did before the one before that came out. Well, that's what I try to do in my work. Where is there a frontier? How can I go back to feeling that feeling that I am trying to talk to people about? Because I don't like coasting. It's boring to me. And if I can share things With empathy, I feel like I can do a better job. So thank you for this.
1: Hi, Seth. It's Paula from Pittsburgh. This isn't a question about your episodes, which I listen to every week, but about the cultural boycott of everything Russian we're seeing globally. I guess this goes into the realm of cultural diplomacy. I read today that the Met is cutting ties with conductors and singers, that they can no longer engage with artists, or institutions that support Putin. But beyond that, people are saying things like they don't think we should be performing Tchaikovsky and Shostakovich, that they don't want to hear Tchaikovsky and Shostakovich, that we shouldn't play the 1812 overture on the 4th of July, or should they be cancelling Swan Lake? Do you think this is a bridge too far?
0: Thank you for this, Paula, and as you know, I don't spend time talking about current events here, but I think it's important to highlight what happens when we normalize things in culture. Normalizing better behavior, people like us do things like this, is part of the long arc of history, bending it toward justice, establishing that what is around us might not be acceptable and we have to get better, or that other things that are better are things that others should be doing. Normalization, the idea people like us do things like this, is critical in how we define our culture. And I think the first part of your point is this. We would be making a big mistake if we normalized the idea that it's okay for big, powerful countries in 2022 and beyond to invade, physically invade with death and destruction other countries. And so I think leaders in our culture are stepping up and saying, it's not okay. And while the Metropolitan Museum of Art or the Metropolitan Opera or any other cultural institution doesn't have a standing army, they do have the ability to send signals about what's normal and what's not but, and it's a huge but, it's a gray area really fast. Turns out Stolachnaya vodka isn't even made in Russia. It turns out that the people or the ideas or the cultural artifacts that some folks are walking away from don't have any leverage. There's no real cost to them. And Tchaikovsky's long dead. Nobody in Russia benefits when we play the 1812 overture. I think there's a difference. It's very tricky, but I think there's a difference between cultural artifacts that remind us of an idea that is no longer okay. For example, getting married at a southern plantation and cultural artifacts that happened to have been created by somebody or a culture that didn't act in ways that we are proud of today. I think the latter is a slippery slope that might be too far because there is no purity. There's no doubt in my mind that one of my great-grandparents was Russian. So if you want to stop listening to this podcast, that's okay. You can do that. But I don't think you will be making a point. So we constantly are faced with things that divide us as we seek to find things that unite us. And I think we have to normalize the important stuff and not normalize the things that might be tempting, but that need to be changed. At the same time, I think it's okay to listen to things, to watch things, to engage in things that happen to have been created under different regimes or by people who are playing by different rules. But of course, your mileage is going to vary. I think thinking about the question is 80%. Of the work to be done. Hi Seth, this is John from Cape Town. And my question is about risk. Risk on the freelancer. We're often right at the end
1: of a chain of communications and it uh, sometimes happens that we get owed money that never gets paid. I know that you aren't exactly an advocate for platforms like Upwork, which charge a hefty commission and uh, tend to encourage the race to the bottom. But the benefit that they do provide is escrow services and dispute mediation. So I'm just wondering what your take is for people like me who create independently and very much at the whim of the client. Your advice in the past has always been find better clients. And I know that that is the ladder upwards. How do I go about not losing money again? How do I go about seeing the red flags and the warning signs? What can be done to mitigate this problem that I've faced numerous times already?
0: Thank you for this, John. It's a really good question, and it has to do, again, with picking better clients. If you only have a few clients a year and they last for a long time, then you, as a valuable freelancer, can establish early and often that the only clients you stick with are the ones who pay you on time. Because... If they want to keep working with you, they can't jerk you around about the money. But it's difficult to get to that point. It's a ladder. It turns out that getting work from a client that's not going to pay you isn't particularly difficult. And you don't want to be that person. So there are ways to establish protocols upfront with people who have found you so that you aren't exposed to that sort of risk. If it's a Fortune 1000 company, a big company, get a binding purchase order because it's not their money anyway and they're not going to jerk you around if you have a binding purchase order, you will get paid. If it's not someone like that, find a service that enables you to set up a simple escrow or find policies that you can put into your arrangements that build in binding arbitration in black and white so that if they don't pay you, You don't have to give up your day job just to get paid. And if it's a client who isn't willing to pay in advance, who's a new client, who isn't coming to you well-recommended, don't take them. It's one more step on the way of getting better clients, that it is entirely possible for you to build a business where you say to your clients, look, I don't have an accounts payable department. I don't have layers of bureaucracy that can collect bills. So the deal is simple. I do extraordinary work at a really good price. And part of the cost to you is you gotta pay me up front. And I understand that feels risky, so you don't have to do big tranches of the project all at once, but that's how I work. And if that doesn't work for you, I understand. And if you wanna see my references, here they are. But right now, the way cash flow is, the fact that I am a soloist means I charge people up front. Here's a Stripe invoice, you can use a credit card. If you're unhappy, By all means, go feel free to challenge it with the credit card company. And maybe I'm going to rip you off, but I'm probably not. And my references make that clear. Because if you want to do business with the big guys, you have to differentiate between the ones who are going to treat money as a tool to get the work they need versus the ones who are going to treat you poorly and use money as a cudgel to win some sort of game you don't even want to play. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse. But it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project, it's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.